Amen, church? We serve a great and awesome God. Hey, two things I want to say real quick before we get started. First of all, it's been a week. It's been a rather interesting week. I know many of you out there are still without power and other things and just want you to know your church loves you and is praying for you and is here for you. Secondly, happy 4th of July. What a weekend. You know, we celebrate the freedom of our country. We celebrate the fact that we here as Christians have religious freedom. And someone said recently, that's an anomaly. Throughout church history, the country that we're living in, the freedom that we experience, it's an anomaly in our day and age. Most of the time throughout history, the church has lived in persecution. And we know, of course, in different parts of the world, that's still the case. So let's celebrate this morning the freedom, or let's celebrate this weekend, rather, the freedom that we have. Well, Rosalind Carter once said, a leader takes people where they want to go. A great leader takes people where they don't necessarily want to go, but ought to be. Every ship needs a captain. Every company needs a board. Every church needs elders and deacons. Church leadership is absolutely essential. Without leaders, a church, just like anything else, would crumble. Now, there are several different types of church government. If you're not familiar, I'll just go over a few of them briefly. There's the Episcopal form of government, which basically means that one person functions as the single leader. The, the Roman Catholic Church is probably the most well-known Episcopal-governed church because the Pope is the ultimate leader, and then under him you have cardinals and archbishops and bishops and so on. Other churches run on something similar, but it's called Episcopalian form of government. In the Episcopalian form of government, the local pastor of the church serves as the leader of the church. Sometimes there is an Episcopalian church community where each church has a pastor that's the leader of that church, but then they answer to a, another pastor who oversees all the churches. A third type of church government is congregational. In this form, the final authority rests on the entire congregation. So meetings are held with members. There's voting that goes on to help decide the direction and the main uh, decisions that are there in the church. Finally, there is what is known as the Presbyterian form of government. And in this form, there is a board of elders who oversee the church. Elder, by the way, is an English translation of the Greek word presbyteros, which is where we get that term, Presbyterian. So there's a brief outline of church government. I could say a lot more on that, but that's enough for our purposes today. Harvest Decatur falls under what we would call the Presbyterian category of church government. Why? Because, as I said last week, everything that we do as a church is intentionally crafted from the Word of God. And that brings us to our text today. We're continuing our series today called Church Basics. We're looking at the church. We're asking questions about what is this thing called the church? How does it work? We've answered such questions already as what is the church? We've answered how does the, what is the church about? We looked at the four pillars last week. This morning, we're going to answer the question, who leads the church? 
How is the leadership structure set up? It's set up with two offices, elder and deacon. So if you read again with me verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So your first point this morning from our text, church leadership is made up of two offices, elders and deacons. Church leadership is made up of two offices, elders and deacons. Now, the first office I want to look at this morning with this first point is the office of the elder. Now, you'll notice in the text right away that it uses this word overseer, but I want you to know that word is synonymous with the word elder. And similarly, the the term pastor, you'll see that in the New Testament as well. It is also synonymous with elder, but there's a little bit of a difference. There's what we call a preaching elder or the pastor, and that would be the difference. His main job, obviously, would be to stand up every Sunday and give the word. So those are the differences, just in case you were wondering what those were. But when you see overseer in the New Testament, think elder. Now, I've been telling you all throughout our series that Harvest Decatur has been set up intentionally to correspond with how the New Testament is set up, or the New Testament church is set up, rather. And this includes how the New Testament church was governed. Now, everywhere Paul went, when he was planning a church or when he went to an established church and he was encouraging that church, everywhere he went, he would put elders into place to rule that church. Or he would instruct somebody like Timothy or Titus to put elders in place of churches. Elders were an essential part of the early church. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. In Acts chapter 14, after preaching to believers in several cities, verse 23 reads, And when they had appointed elders for 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 them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Philippians 1 opens with these words, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The epistle to Titus begins this way, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put in order what remained and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And on and on it goes throughout the New Testament. The early church had these two offices, elders and deacons, and Harvest Decatur is set up similarly to the early church. We believe in a biblical approach to church government through what we call a plurality of elders. Dave Harvey, if you don't know who he is, he is the president of GCC, which stands for the Great Commission Collective. That is the collective that we at church are a part of, and that collective strengthens church leaders. It plants other churches. Well, Dave Harvey wrote a book called The Plurality Principle, and in that book he writes this. The New Testament terms for pastor, overseer, or elder are never used to talk about a single leader ruling or governing the church alone. Instead, they are used to reference plural leadership. We believe in an elder board that works together in a plurality. We believe in a plurality of elders. And let me add, let me add something here. We believe that elders are to be men. Why? That's misogynistic. No, not at all. The reason we believe in male elder leadership, again, comes right out of the Bible. And we're going to get to the qualifications of elders and deacons here in a minute, but one of the qualifications for an elder is the ability to teach. And you see, 
That's in verse 2 here. But in the previous chapter of 1 Timothy, chapter 2, Paul has just established that teaching or exercising oversight over men is not permitted by women. And let me clarify that preaching the word of God is meant to come from men. And one of the qualifications of being an elder is to be able to teach the word of God so we believe in male elder leadership. Now, I know, believe me, I know, that is not a popular idea in our day and age. And there are some in our world, some in our culture, who would rip me up for saying something like that. So then why do I say it? Quite simply, because it's what the Bible teaches. You may remember I told you last week, the Bible says things sometimes that offend people. But if I, I'm going to say this gently, be that as it may, we're going to teach the Bible. We're going to proclaim the word of God even when it's unpopular. And please understand, I want to come across gently here because I believe what the Bible says. I believe that women should not be preaching the word of God from the pulpit, but I believe that women offer so much to the church. You out there, you women have great gifts and great abilities that God wants to use to glorify himself and to encourage the church. So let me just encourage you with that. The point I'm trying to make, though, to get back on track here, because the Bible, because we teach what the Bible says, we here at Harvest Decatur believe that male elder leadership works in a plurality, and that's what we govern our church with. Now, you might think to yourself, how does plurality work? Well, the way plurality works is through mutual submission to each other. Within plurality, we have different roles. I mean, we have a pastor who does the day-to-day -day business of the church and preaches. We have an elder chair who's responsible for organizing and leading the, church, the elder meetings and so forth. We govern within these elder meetings. We each have an equal voice, and at the same time, we strive for consensus, we strive to make decisions based on a consensus. We don't vote. We don't vote in an element. You know what voting does? Voting draws lines in the sand. We don't vote. Rather, we talk through issues and we come to a consensus as to what is to be done. We listen to each other. We respect each other. We talk through things. And in an issue where we are divided, we pray it through. We wait a week or two, or whatever it takes, and then we talk it through again, but we come to a place of mutual submission and a place where we can be in consensus. It's not always easy, but that's what we strive for. We define our responsibilities with these three words, doctrine, direction, and discipline. The elders oversee the doctrine, direction, and discipline of the church. So the doctrine we strive to make sure that what is said here and what is practiced here at our church is scriptural. We oversee the direction, that is, you know, where's the church going? What's our next step? How are we supposed to grow? And we oversee discipline, and that could mean, you know, who needs help being discipled? How can we step in as elders? It could also mean matters of church discipline. What's the process? Well, it's the elders who step in and are responsible for that. So that brings us to a question, well, how do we decide who should be considered as an elder? Well, Paul introduces that. Back to our verse, he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
So the first and most important question when it comes to a church leader is this, do they want it? Do they want it? To aspire, you see that, is to desire something. When a man wants to lead as an elder, that's a good thing, Paul says. We ask, does the person want it? And then the next question is, what are his motives for wanting it? Motives are so important. You know, 1 Peter 5 tells us, this is to elders, by the way, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. This is an office that is to be motivated by shepherding the flock. Not for shameful gain. We don't do it for money. We don't do it for fame. We don't do it for power or whatever. We lead the flock in godliness. And if that's the motivation behind the desire to be an elder, that's a good thing. So you might be asking yourself, what can I take from all this? I mean, you've given me a lot of information. What do I do this, do with all this? You know, this morning, I'm going to admit something to you. This morning might feel somewhat like being hit with a fire hose. Okay, there's a lot of information that I want to explain to you, but, but I want to stop from time to time. And I want to give you some key things that you can grab onto for your own spiritual growth. Here's two things right off the bat. Simply ask yourself if you feel led by the Holy Spirit to lead. Could you be a leader in the church in some capacity? Could you be a leader here at Harvest in some capacity? Does that mean being an elder? Maybe. Could that mean being a deacon? Maybe. But you know, there's other positions of leadership that we need here at Harvest. We need nursery workers. I'm not going to lie, we're hurting right now. We need people to teach our children. We need hospitality workers. We need small group leaders. We need people to serve in various areas. How could God be calling you? So let me encourage you. Ask yourself that question. But second, pray. Pray for your leaders. You know, I sit on the elder board, and sometimes the meetings are hard. We face some challenging things, and we need wisdom. We need unity. We need your prayers. We want to, every man that sits on an elder board has the desire to lead in a way that honors the Lord. So I'm asking you, as the congregation, pray for your leaders. Same goes for the deacons and the small group leaders and harvest students and harvest kids and hospitality and worship team and production and pray for all of it. Just pray for your church. Pray for your church. So the first question when it comes to being a church leader is, do I want it? Do I want to be an elder? Do I want to be a deacon? And if you don't want it, well, that's telling. If you don't want it, there's something in you that does not want that, then God has something else for you. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. But if you do want it and your motives are right, then the next question is, are you qualified? Are you qualified? And that leads us to our second point. Here's your second point. Church leadership qualifications focus on character. Church leadership qualifications focus on character, not skill, not social status, not position, character. What is character? Let me give you a definition. Character is the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. 
Character is the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. When someone is generous, we might think generosity is a part of their character. Church leadership qualifications focus on character. By the way, there are two skills mentioned in this list. There's two skills mentioned, but they're not what you might think. They're not skills in creativity or organization or something like that. These are the two skills that Paul gives in this list of qualities. He says the ability to teach for the elders and how they run their family. That's elders and deacons. And those are the only two skills given. There's no mention of a person's drive, a person's leadership type, if they own their own company or not. What Paul specifies as the marks of a good leader are character qualities. Give me a man or woman with a strong, godly character above someone with good business sense, charisma, or even a college degree. We want leaders of godly character. What does that look like? Fortunately, Paul gave us a list. And if you've read the epistles, you'll know Paul is very fond of lists. So let's go through this one. I'm gonna, what I'm going to do here, just so you know, is I'm going to kind of combine the elders and deacons as we work through this, because some of them are similar. There's a little bit of difference here, so follow along. I'm going to be jumping up and down the passage a little bit, but look at verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, that term above reproach, that seems to set the stage for the elder of everything that follows. Above reproach is like the crown there. What does that mean, above reproach? That means irreproachable, beyond criticism, faultless. Somebody say, that's not me. It's not me, for sure. That's a tall order. I'm honestly, who on planet Earth attains to faultlessness? Well, we'll see what Paul is specifically talking about. And let me just put, say, he's not meaning that we have to be perfect. There's only one who's perfect. But this is what we're striving for. So what does it mean to be above reproach? The first thing that he says is this, in verse 2, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, that might not be so hard in our day and age, but remember, polygamy was big in the New Testament times. And Paul says the husband of one wife. But actually, you know, the Greek there really means one woman man. That's like the literal translation, a one-woman man. This is the same wording, by the way, found in verse 12 when speaking of the deacons, that they must be one-woman man. That's the idea. And what that's getting at is that the elder or the deacon needs to have the mindset that marriage is between one man and one woman. Elders and deacons need to have that mindset. See, it doesn't really matter if the elder or the deacon is married or not, but that they have that mindset that they have that biblical teaching that marriage is between one man and one woman. They are one woman man. Paul gives then four characteristics in the rest of verse 2. He says, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Now, all those are pretty self-evident, but I'm just going to give some brief descriptions on what those mean. The elder must be sober-minded, which is level-headed, okay? Not someone who's controlled by their emotions and fails to be able to think rationally, but sober-minded, which is self-controlled, which is also kind of the similar idea, refraining from the passions that sometimes drive us to do silly things, but being able to maintain self-control. They need to be respectable, which has the idea of evoking admiration, 
An elder should be a man you can look up to and admire for their godly character. But they're also to be hospitable. They are to entertain as it was, serve people, be warm, be loving. If you jump down to verse 8, you'll see that there's two qualities given to the deacons that are similar. Verse 8 says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued. To be dignified there is worthy of respect, or even it carries a sense of being honest, which goes into the idea of not being double-tongued. Not being double-tongued is a way, another way of saying insincere. So the deacon, what we're looking for there is being an honest, sincere, respectable person. Now back up to verse 2. Paul lists two skills for the elder, like I told you. The first one was able to teach. Able to teach is a skill that an elder needs to have. And this is unique to the elder. Deacons are not required to be able to teach. And the insinuation is here is that they teach God's word. They handle the word with authority. Ironically enough, here in a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing our elder-led series. We do this every summer. We're going to go through some sections and acts, and we're going to present to you how to go through the gospel, how that we are commissioned to share the gospel as Christians. And I'm excited about that. But both elders and deacons are expected to be self-controlled when, in verse 3, we come to something else. Look at verse 3 for a second. Verse 3 says, not a drunkard. Verse 8, if you jump down there, it says, not addicted to much wine. Now, it's important to note something here. The elder and the deacon are to be self-controlled when it comes to alcohol, but I want to be clear that the Bible does not forbid alcohol. Did you know that? Now, I don't know what specific background or convictions that you may have, but the Bible does not completely abdicate alcohol. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is moderation. We're told in Ephesians 5, actually, not to be drunk. But then Timothy is told by Paul to take a little wine for his stomach. What's going on there? The practice of self-control. So what I'm getting at here is we at Harvest, we approach alcohol this way. Practice moderation. Obey the Bible and don't get drunk. But by no means do you have to avoid it altogether. Now, it might be your conviction to avoid it altogether. And if that's your conviction, great. Follow your conviction. I'm not here to change that. I just want to lay out to you where we stand as a church, again, based on what God's Word says. Paul goes into several negatives for the elder next. He writes this, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. The idea of not being a lover of money is echoed with the deacons in verse 8. He says, not greedy for dishonest gain. Elders are to govern with gentleness, not with an iron fist. Not quarreling, which is the idea of there should be peaceable. We want strong leaders, yes, don't get me wrong, but we want leaders who are gentle, leaders who are peaceable, leaders who lead with a tender hand. Back to the idea of 1 Peter chapter 5, he compares elders to shepherding. Interestingly enough, shepherding in the first century, they didn't drive their sheep from behind. They led out in front. That's the way shepherds did it in the first century. And what a beautiful picture of how an elder should lead the church out front, showing the way, being an example. That's the idea. Next, the elder and deacons are expected to lead their homes well. Verse 4 says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Verse 12, again, jumping down to the deacon, says, managing their children and their households well. Now, this does not imply that the elder or deacon must have a perfect running family. You know, the husband and the wife have a perfect relationship. The kids are always minding. That's not what's going on here, or no one would qualify. What, is he's, what he is saying here is that elders and deacons need to understand their roles as husbands and fathers. They need to have a clear picture of what that role is. A husband and father who's ignoring their role as the spiritual leader of the home is unfit to lead God's church. That's what he's saying here. Elders and deacons don't do this perfectly, but they should do it increasingly striving to be better, striving for excellence. And let me just point out, stumbling along the way, but striving, ever striving to be better and better at those tasks. Now, there's two more things Paul writes about the elders. Look at verse six. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, that might seem obvious, but Paul thought it necessary to include that, that elders should not be a recent convert. Why? Because the power might go to their head. They may not be grounded in God's word as they should be, and the power might go to the head. They might get puffed up. They might get conceited over the power, and they're not shepherding God's church as they should be. And the result is this. Paul says they fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, what does that mean? Quite clearly, it means that they fall prey to Satan's traps. They fall prey to Satan's traps. This idea, by the way, is repeated in the next verse. The New American Commentary states this, proud people will become blind to Satan's working and will fall into defeat, trouble, and ruin. This is a condemnation Satan can inflict on spiritually insensitive leaders. Verse 7 says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, if you stop and think about it, why would it matter if an elder were, had a good reputation with outsiders? Outsiders there would be non-Christians. Why is that important? Well, by having the respect of the outside world, an, an elder maintains a good witness. If they don't have a good reputation with those of the outside church, then you see an aspect of their lives that they might be hiding when they're in the church. And what we want is for them to have a good reputation outside and inside. Now, I understand that some people are just antagonistic. Some non-Christians are just not going to like anybody and will always have something bad to say. But we look at the overall picture, not just what one person says. Now, there are two additional comments that are made about the deacons. First, verse 9. Verse 9 tells us this about deacons. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In other words, Christian leaders must hold to the content of Christian belief. They must hold to what God's word says. And honestly, that makes a lot of sense. You don't want a person in leadership who isn't convinced of solid doctrine. That's just a disaster waiting to happen. Verse 10 says, this is of the deacons again, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now, this is not like, you know, a math final. All deacons who come in have to take a final on math. That's not what we're talking about. What Paul is saying here is that a candidate should be evaluated. And that's what we do as elders and deacons when another candidate is, is, under, uh, is, is um, 
under this test, we're looking to see, do they fit the bill of everything we've just been talking about? Now, the last thing that I want to point out when it comes to the list that's in the deacons, verses 8 through 13, is verse 11. Let's read that together. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, the women that are mentioned in this verse are encouraged to be dignified. And by the way, that's the same word in verse 8 when the deacons are introduced. It says they are to be careful with their speech, not slandering people. And they're also to be sober-minded, which again is level-headed, which was mentioned above. And then it says they should be faithful in all things, which means they should be trustworthy in every aspect of their life. They should be trustworthy. But the question here is this. Who are these women? People fall on two sides of this verse. The first is this. They say what seems stated that the verse is talking about the conduct of a deacon's wife. But the second view actually says that these are actually women deacons. Now, the argument for the first view is this. The argument is that, well, you know, in Acts chapter 6, when the deacons were formed, they were just men. And if you look at the verse, it seems to say in 1 Timothy 3, talking about their wives. That's the argument to support that we're talking about deacon wives here. But the argument for the second view, that these are not wives but women deacons, is this. Scripture nowhere forbids that women are deacons. Yes, maybe the first deacons were men in Acts 6, but nowhere does the Scripture actually forbid women deacons as it does women elders. Also, the second view would say that 1 Timothy 2, that word there for women or wives can also mean women, and that's true. It's a generic word that could be wives or women. Furthermore, if you look at verse 11 in your Bible, do you see the word there, T-H-E-I-R, their wives? In the Greek, the there is not there. It just says wives or women. There's no there there. Now, interestingly, had you asked me a week ago, what is this verse talking about? I'd have said it was talking about deacon wives. But I no longer believe that. After careful study this week, I find that the argument that is here that supports women deacons to be far more convincing. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute. If he's referring to women deacons, why didn't he just say deaconesses? Because when Paul was writing this, there was no word deaconesses. Just the word deacon. And I find this very interesting. So another bit of support for women deacons is found in Romans 16.1. You can read this on the screen. Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centuria. That word servant there in that verse is diakonos, deacon. I find this absolutely fascinating. You know what it is? It's a good reminder to me that I'm still learning that God's word should and always will be teaching me and teaching us so long as we study it. You know, sometimes our views change, and that's okay so long as they align with God's word. Now, I know, again, I know I've covered a lot of ground. I've been hitting you with a fire hose this morning, so you might be asking me, oh, what's the point to your point? A couple things I want to share. First, This list, 
gives us clear character qualities that we as a church should be looking for in our leaders. You know, it's so tempting to think about somebody who's got great charisma, great business sense, maybe they have their own business or something. Look at that person. That person would make a great elder. It's so tempting, but you know what? The Bible doesn't teach us to look for those qualities, and maybe they would be a good elder if they have the character qualities that are listed here. This is what we should be looking for. This is what all of us should be looking for as we consider church leaders, as we consider one another. We should be looking for these qualifications and not be distracted by appearance or skill or education or anything else. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of when Samuel, the prophet Samuel, went to anoint the new king after Saul had failed. Maybe you remember the story in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes to anoint the new king and the first person he sees is Jesse's firstborn son and the text reads like this. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And that's what we should be looking for in our leaders, but not just our leaders. We should be looking at the heart of every Christian brother and sister. We need to get beyond appearances, beyond giftedness, beyond personality, and get to the heart. And here's the thing. For everyone you meet who is a brother or sister in Christ, that person has already been accepted by God. Why should we let anything about who they are, their personality, their giftedness, why should we let any of that stop them from being accepted by us? We need to get beyond those things and look to the heart. So walk away with a conviction that we don't look at anything of a person but the heart. Strive to look at that. Secondly, here's something else I want you to walk away with. Though these are qualifications for church leaders, very clear from the text, these are qualifications for church leaders, that doesn't mean that the rest of us get a pass. This is the target for every child of God. Maybe you ask the question, what do I shoot for as a child of God? What am I, what am I going for in my spiritual maturity? You're going for 1 Timothy 1 through 13. This is where we need to be headed. These are the qualities that all of us, men and women, should be reaching for. Whether you're a leader in the church or not, you want said of you that you are beyond reproach, that you are dignified, that you are sober-minded, that you are gentle, that you are not quarrelsome, that you're a good father, a good mother, a good husband, a good wife, and on and on it goes Those are the things we should all be striving for as God's church. Make the character qualities of 1 Timothy 3 your goal. And you might think, well, how do I do that? I'll tell you how here in just a minute. I want to give you your last point first. Here's your last point this morning. Church leaders are rewarded for their faithfulness. Church leaders are rewarded for their faithfulness. Look at verse 13. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
This verse is attached to the qualification for deacons, but the same can be said of the elders. Those who serve in the church gain a good standing for themselves. What's a good standing? Well, those who serve, serve well, the text says, they gain a good standing. But what is that? It means that they receive respect and appreciation from the church. And that should be natural. Let me just ask you, church, do you respect and appreciate your elders and deacons? I believe you do. And I do too. I respect and appreciate my fellow elders and deacons. These are good men. They're godly men. They're striving to do what is right. How can you not respect that? Are they perfect? No. Do they make mistakes? Let me say that again. Do we make mistakes? Yes, we do. You know, even over the short time that I've been senior pastor at Harvest, I look back at things that I could have done better. And every leader should think that way, looking back and saying, I could have done this better, I could have done that better. But the lack of perfection does not diminish my respect and admiration of the leaders of this church. They gain a good standing among themselves. And the verse goes on to say, they gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. What is that all about? Most likely what that means is their confidence in the faith grows from seeing the gospel working again and again in people's lives. You know, one of the joys of church leadership is seeing people grow in their faith. I love that. And the more we see that, the more our confidence in God's work grows. You know, most of you know that I served as a youth minister for many years before becoming senior pastor. And those years of youth leading were full of rewards that extend even today. I know men and women who are now adults that came to the youth group back when they were in their junior high and high school years. And I see them now still walking with the Lord. That is rewarding. These are the rewards for church leaders. In simple terms, the rewards are this. Think of this. The rewards are spiritual progress. Being in leadership forces one to depend on God and thus generates spiritual progress in their lives. They're not going to get rich from this. They're not going to get rich from this. But the reward is not monetary. The reward is a good reputation and confidence in the gospel. So what can you take away from this? Well, here's a truth. One day, Christ will reward all of us for our faithfulness. You will see him face to face one day. And he will smile at you and he will reward you for your faithfulness. And let that thought drive you to serve well. Let the picture in your mind of your Savior rewarding you be the encouragement that you need to keep going when life gets tough. Leaders, they're supposed to be people we can look up to. They're supposed to be people we can admire. They're supposed to be people we emulate and above all, people we follow. But the sad truth is Many leaders fall utterly short. I admit, even as your pastor, I fall utterly short. Your leaders here in the church are flawed, and we're going to disappoint you. That's not our aim, but it's a fact. Speaking of Samuel anointing a king, you know, when Israel demanded a king from God, he gave them Saul. 
Saul was a tragedy. But then God gave them David, and he was better by far, but he still fell utterly short. But it was through the lead, that leader, King David, that God brought us the leader, the one who does not fall utterly short, the one who showed us what true leadership looks like, the one whose character matched every point in 1 Timothy 3 perfectly. That leader gave us the ultimate example of being above reproach. And it's only through that one perfect leader, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you and I have even the slightest hope of resembling the character qualities listed in 1 Timothy 3. How do we reach the goal of 1 Timothy 3? Look to your leader. Look to your Savior. Meditate daily on what he did for you on the cross and the grave. Submit to his will for your life. Study his word. Follow the guidance of the spirit that's at work within you, and then you'll see those qualities emerge. Then you'll see your heart molded toward his. Then you'll become all you can be as a man or a woman of God. Church leadership is essential and we here at Harvest need leaders. We need men and women to stand up and lead. And the only way to cultivate the kind of leadership needed is to look at our shepherd and follow him, even when he takes us to places we don't necessarily want to go, but ought to be. Let's pray. Jesus, chief shepherd, we are your church. You have given this church and all churches leaders. The truth is, we can't do this without your help. So help us. Help your leaders lead the church rightly. Jesus, help us all to strive to attain the character qualities listed in 1 Timothy 3. We all want to be mature in our faith, following you with our whole hearts. Grant us the change we need to become more and more like you. Lord, raise up leaders right here in this room who will go on to be teachers, greeters, musicians, deacons, elders. Do this, we pray, in the great and awesome name of Jesus.